today is Palm Sunday, and uh, in Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to spend most of our time. And this day, uh, we talked last week about the suffering of Christ. We talked about the, the pain that He endured for, for our, our salvation, and that it was driven by love, and that He was hated by people without reason because He brought the light of Christ, the light of the love of God, the light of His truth into a world. And it said, Scripture says that people did not love the light. They instead, they loved darkness and they rejected the light and the light of Christ. And folks, he, he went and he suffered because of the standards of holiness that come along with the holiness of who God is. And people hated him for that. And, and it was carrying a message of repentance to people and people did not want that. They hardened their hearts to him. And today, we celebrate the fact that Christ rode in to Jerusalem in honor and praise and Palm Sunday and the, the children of Israel all gathered around Him and they're, they're celebrating with palms and laying them down and laying their coats on the road. And we know that the palm branch signifies Israel as a nation and really what this meant against the Roman government. A lot of things were taking place politically in the day. But I'm not going to just focus on Palm Sunday. I want to focus on the cross this morning. Next week I'm, we're going to be talking about uh, the resurrection, obviously, in our sunrise service and following our cantata briefly, but uh, I just want us to focus in on the cross, what's taking place. Obviously, what we celebrate on Good Friday is Jesus Christ giving His life for our sins. And when He came into this world and people hated Him for it, He came into the world as a light, according to John chapter 1, and He came in as a light. But if you look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we see that the light has come to expose the real need of our lives, and it's the fact that we are sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now there's two different ways you can take this verse. You take it one of two different ways. You can be that individual that realizes and rec recognizes that they're not perfect, and that they never have been perfect. That individual that's humble enough to realize I have struggled with sin in my life, and I have felt all alone and felt like this sin has alienated me and caused me to believe that I am a strange individual, that nobody else ever has to deal with this thing. Now, as a kid growing up in church, that's how I felt. I felt like I was the strange one. I felt like I was the one that always had to deal with issues of sin. And I was constantly guilt-ridden with it. And I constantly had these things. But this verse like this tells me something really cool. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That doesn't sound like much of an encouragement, but to the person that sin has alienated and has, has brought into a, a life of aloneness and saying, wow, I'm the only one. I must be a really, really bad person. The truth of the matter is, is that we're all really bad people. Can I get an amen on that one? Amen. Scripture says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A person can be encouraged by this to say, wow, you know, when I go to church and I see a pastor in a suit and he's got a fake smile on his face, a receding hairline and a bald spot, <laughs> that that guy, too, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, I have. Just because I can put a suit on, just because I can come up here and I can speak about the Word of God doesn't mean I've never dealt with issues in my life doesn't mean that I'm, on occasions I still have to deal with issues in my life. We all have to maintain our house. Can I get an amen? So I have to do that. It encourages me to let me know and to recognize that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory, glory of God. It's not me. You're not drifting on a sea by yourself. It's everybody. This is not just a me thing. It's a people thing. 
It's all of us. And then the other way you can take it, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The other way you can take it is, is like people that, that, that have worked really, really hard to present themselves as somebody good. Somebody that's done everything they have, could do to present themselves as a great person or a kind person or a nice person or a person that says, I am earning my salvation, I'm good enough. And then these, these, these low-life Christians come in and they say, hey, look, you're not any better than me. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then suddenly somebody gets offended. Who are you to tell me I've fallen short of something? You hypocrite? Who are you to tell me, and by what standard, some standard of some God? Listen, what's right for me is right for me, and what's right for you is right for you. You can't judge what's right for me and what's right for you. Everything's relative. How dare you offend me and say that there's something wrong with me or I've failed in some way or not accomplished things. It's that kind of stuff that makes people go to your church and put money in the tithe to make themselves feel better. can be taken one of two different ways. One way of love and recognizing I'm not alone in this world, and the other way of saying, wow, somebody's judgmental, speaking failure, speaking offense. There's a problem with mankind. And the problem is, is we have a disease. We have a sickness that's killing us physically, and most importantly, spiritually. It's something we can't take out on our own. It's not something that we can fix with an over-counter uh, drug. It's not something we can go to a doctor and get a prescription and go get filled at CVS and take and be good enough. It is a spiritual cancer that must be destroyed in our lives because it is killing us. There is no hope for us spiritually. All of us are infested with this sickness called sin. And the mentality of the world does not want to deal with the fact that there may be something wrong with them. Our culture is moving in a direction that if you even say anything against anybody and what they want to say or what they want to do, if you suggest that they've stepped outside of any kind of standard or spiritual law or morality, they call you a hater, they call you judgmental, they call you rude, they call you uh, weak-minded and arrogant. If you suggest that there's a standard or that the standard has been broken by them, but it doesn't just end with the world. It also is coming into the church where people are afraid to even address issues in the church anymore. Church people get offended by the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Church people don't like hearing that there's something wrong with them. Right now everybody's going, what are you trying to say, Pastor? <laughs> what I'm getting ready to say is look at your neighbor and say, he's talking about you. <laughs> he's talking about you. Right? Church people, if you get up in a pulpit and you preach a challenging message or anything that has to do with any kind of questionable issue of the day, suddenly you're hypocritical, you're called, uh, you're called legalistic. Why? Because all of sin have fallen short of the glory of God. Well, that's fine if you're talking about the sinner. Pastor, are you still talking about me? Yes, I am. All of us. thoroughly infested with the disease called sin. And it doesn't matter how hard you've tried. It doesn't matter how hard you've worked to impress God. The fact of the matter is, is this, folks, that we cannot ignore this condition in our lives because Father God has never ignored this condition in man's life. He's never ignored it. 
You go clear back to the Garden of Eden, the very first sin of mankind. Adam and Eve, who, who, who chose by a desire of their own knowledge and their own path to eat a fruit that was forbidden to them, and, and yet they, they did it anyway, and they found themselves to be naked, and instead of running to God, they ran to the bushes and hid themselves. And God, the initiator, walks in. God comes in and confronts them. He came looking for them while man was hiding from him. And it was God that asked the question, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you to eat? While man was still remaining silent and only answering uh, questions with excuses and self-justification. It was God that explained the consequences of their actions, passing the correct judgment. It was God that took animal skins from the sacrifice that had been made for their sins and covered their nakedness. It was man that had to receive that clothing. And it was God that had given a hint of a promise of one that would come from their offspring that would crush the serpent's head. God came and said, I know that you've sinned, but I'm not leaving you that way. I can't. I love you too much. And he sacrificed an animal and he put the skins on them and covered them. Folks, do we realize what a humbling experience that had to be for Adam and Eve? Why? Why is it humbling? It's humbling because Adam, who had been given as a caretaker over this garden, Adam, who had been given a caretaker over it, who sat around and named the animals, And loved them and cared for them and took care of them until God said, okay, he's ready. He can be entrusted with one of his own kind. And he took care of them. And now, because he sinned, it affected even nature itself. Those things that he was entrusted with, he now wore its own skin on his body. And every time he would walk by a pool and he would look in to see his reflection, he would see the result of his sin. I have to be covered by this because I was sinful. See, sin doesn't just affect us. It affects our family. It affects our environment. The Noah movie suggests that the biggest sin that was caused was the fact that mankind sinned against the earth. And so God was wiping out mankind from the earth for sinning against the earth. Folks, there's no doubt that mankind has sinned against the earth. We've not taken care of it like we should have. But the fact of the matter is the greatest sin is is that we've sinned against God. We've sinned against God. This condition that we have is hopeless. It's hopeless in and of ourselves. And Jesus knew that and He came into the world to be the light of the world and He walked into it and the world was full of self-glorification. It was full of puffed up knowledge. It was full of self-sufficiency. And by the world's self-knowledge and self-worship, they set up their own standards, their own lists of right and wrong. And when the light of the real truth came into man's world, some loved him and some hated him for it. And as Jesus walked into it, he carried the truth, the light of of life and eternity. Some refused to come to him to deal with their moral situation, their sinful condition. Instead, they chose to hide themselves in the bush of denial and rationalization. They decided to hide themselves in the bush of tradition. They hid themselves in a bush of knowledge and and self-glorification. They lied and hid themselves from God. And in their pride, they loved their self. And they loved their freedom that they've made for themselves rather than the true freedom which comes in Christ. So when the Son of God walked into this world, it was confirmed. Mankind was sick. Mankind was hopeless. 
And not just a few of them, but all of them. All had sinned. And all had fallen short of the glory of God. All had struggled. And even those that worked and tried to earn God's favor, and those that tried to live holiness, and those that tried to do everything right, fell short. They failed. It was a hopeless condition. And this is the problem, folks. Mankind, God's creation that He loves dearly, has sinned against God and have separated themselves from God. Not just a few, not just the Hitlers of the world, not just the murderers, not those that have committed heinous crimes, but all, every one of them. The rich, the poor, the beautiful, the ugly, the powerful, the meek, the quiet, the loud, every single one. All have sinned. But there's good news. When light comes, life comes. Has anybody looked out your window in the last four days? Green. (laughs) Jeez, let's just all just dwell in the thought of it for a second. Light has brought life. I drove down Liberty Street and I looked out the window to my right and I saw little yellow flowers and purple flowers and I went, oh. I felt like the cowardly lion. Remember the cowardly lion? You go, <laughs> I just look out the window and I see flowers and the sun's shining and it's warm and I'm like, God is so good. Life. For John, John 1 verse 4 says, In Him was life and that life was the light of men. Somebody so alive that it just flowed from him. Have you ever met somebody that was just so full of life that people were just drawn to him? That's Jesus. Jesus was the perfect example of that. People say, well, that's a really charismatic individual. Jesus was the most charismatic individual you'd ever seen in your life. Because there wasn't beauty, there wasn't God-given glory that was external, that could be seen, that would draw us to him. He was just full of life. It was light. And that life was the light of men. And He came in to shine His light. And that life, that light and life that flowed from Him brought people to a point of decision. He didn't come to bring death to your life of sin by the light. He is the light so that you could see your life of sin as death and give you life. He didn't just come to destroy things and take away things. He came to give you life abundantly. So what is the plan of restoring life and relationship for mankind and God? Look back in your Bibles, Romans 3. We just read verse 23. Let's look at verses 24 through 26. All men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We see in this that all those people that are lost in a hopeless situation that have all fallen short of the glory of God, that have all sinned, there's hope for them. And that hope is found and that they're justified freely by the grace through the redemption, through the cross. 
That redemption that is found in Jesus Christ doesn't matter. If you are a sinner, all of us have been, all of us are. And folks, we are all redeemed or potentially be redeemed if you have not put your faith in Him. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But if you put your faith and hope in Christ, it's guaranteed. It's finished. Look at verse 25. God presented Him. God presented His Son as a sacrifice. God brought His own Son, just like Abraham brought Isaac up to the top of Mount Moriah, and Isaac laid down in preparation for, 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 uh, for the, his, his sacrifice there. Jesus Christ sent by the Father. God the Father initiated the correction for us. Let's grasp this for just a second, how important this is. Why is it the Scripture says over and over and over that we need to be peacemakers? Why does it say over and over and over that people that are children of God, that are followers of Jesus Christ, should say if they go to the altar and they have a gift and they're going to give that gift up to God and yet you find out your brother has something against you, first go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer the gift. Why is it that we hear that stuff? But Father, they've got a problem against me. Why do I have to? Why, 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 why? I'll tell you why. Because God the Father expects us to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. We're supposed to take on the nature of our Father. And the nature of our Father is, as you sinned against me, I'll find a way to make sure that we can get this thing corrected. He was the initiator of reconciliation. He initiated it. He's the one that said, I will offer my Son to you. I will offer my Son to take the pain and the sacrifice and the wages that you have earned. This is a pretty cool characteristic of God, is it not? And God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. If you're reading another version, the King James Version says propitiation, things of this nature. But the, what this is saying is, is that God offering this this perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, for our sins, this was a plan from the very beginning. Now, when I was a kid, I thought that that the enemy, the devil, just kept messing up God's plans all the time. In my finite thinking, I just thought, well, God made this perfect earth, and, and, and the devil just messed everything up. And then God had to do plan B, and the devil messed it up. And then God had to do plan C, and the devil messed it up. And, oh, now we're, now we're wiping out the earth and starting over. devil messed it up again. That's not the case, folks. All throughout the Scripture, God's revealing Himself to us. And we know that in Revelation, at the very end of the book, it talked about the very beginning before there ever was a creation. And it says that Jesus was the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He had made the mind up. The decision was made beforehand. In God's foreknowledge, understanding what was going to take place, it happened. Okay? It wasn't God trying to create the new thing. Oh, great, option B, option C, option whatever. This has always been the plan. And all who sinned prior to the coming of Jesus were held, left unpunished, until the blood had been shed by the perfect Lamb. Whether it be shed unto their salvation by faith that they'd put into the sacrifices prior to, or by the fact that it would hold them guilty for their actions of sin and rejection of the Father. The Greek word translated as atonement for propitiation or propitiation means that the wrath of God was appeased in the atonement of Jesus' blood. Now, as we talk about this, just hang with me for just a minute. The Greek individual that would read that and understand that, basically what that means is, is there was an amends made. They made amends. We all know what that means, right? There we were first separated, divided. We were in disagreement. But because of this atonement, we are now one. But to the Jew, that word that's used, that understanding of atonement, has a greater meaning because 
The atonement in Hebrews, it talks about this in Hebrews 9.5, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. The mercy seat speaking of the atonement, the cover over the Ark of the Covenant. There's two cherubs sitting on either side with their wings pointed in. It's the place that said in the Holy of Holies and over the covenant was the Shekinah glory of God dwelling there in kind of a cloud, a colorful gathering of God His glory, just a, a part of His glory gathered over the top of it and, and what would happen is is every year they would go out and they would make a sacrifice of this lamb and they would bring it in and the high priest once every year would come in and they would sprinkle and make the atonement for the people and their sins and it would be shed upon the mercy seat the atonement so when they hear this they know this is more than just a big word this says to them that this Jesus came and He not only died, but His blood was sufficient to cover your sins. He made atonement for you. In other words, He did something the priest couldn't do. The priest did everything as a symbol for this day. But today, He made atonement for you. And it was done sufficiently once and for all. He doesn't have to come back next year and do it. Atonement's been made. The blood was shed. He goes to the right hand of the Father. And He says that He's interceding for you today in comparison to the job of the priest to go in before God in that presence over the Ark of the Covenant. Folks, Jesus Christ died as an atonement for us. A propitiation for us. What else does this mean? It was in place of. And obviously the Jews understood this, that that animal, their sin was expiated onto that animal. And the blood shed on an innocent animal and killed. And they had to behold and they had to lay their hand upon it. And the animal had to die in their place. And not just a big, ugly, smelly animal, an innocent one. Had to die for you and your sins. They understood in 1 John verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, He is the atoning sacrifice. And the King James Version says propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This thing that Christ did is for the whole entire world. The guilt of every individual in this world. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all have the blood of Jesus available to be saved and forgiven of their sins. Every single one. All of us. In Hebrews 2, verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. In more understandable terms, church, Jesus gave himself to be a victim for us. Pastor Tim made a statement a few weeks ago when I was gone, something to the effect of that uh, debts don't just go away, somebody has to pay them. Debts don't just go away. Somebody's got to pay them. In the natural sense, and folks, it's just the same way in the spiritual sense. God, because He's just, and because God is holy, mankind, all of mankind has sinned, and sin has to die. God, in His just uh, countenance, and His just judgment, had to look in at sin and say, everybody's going to die. But He sent Jesus. 
And he said, I'm going to send a worthy sacrifice. And he was an innocent sacrifice. And he was without sin. He lived his life without sin, folks. And therefore, because of that, he was worthy enough to go to the cross for your sin and for my sin. Scripture says that he became sin for us. Do we understand the seriousness? Because I couldn't go and die for your sins. It's just that I would die. I would die for my own sins. And if you tried to die for my sins to, 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 to cleanse me of this curse of sin, it wouldn't work because you would die for your own sins. You are not righteous enough. You are not holy enough. You are not good enough. You are not innocent enough. Jesus Christ had to live an innocent life and go to the cross so that our sins can be forgiven. Why? Because all have sinned. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. So how do we receive this forgiveness? Back up a little bit. Romans 3.22 This righteousness from God, this forgiveness, this, this, this gift from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This righteousness isn't something that you attain by works. It's not something that you can go out and purchase. It's not something that you can go buy. It is something that is given by God. And it is achieved and received through faith. Hmm. And how do we receive it by faith? We believe. Sounds pretty difficult, doesn't it? Those who believe can have righteousness imparted to them. What we must know, church, is that when I say believe, I'm not talking about acknowledging. I'm not just going to talk about being one of those people that says, Yes, I believe Jesus walked the earth and he was a great teacher and some would even call him a prophet. He was a really good man that walked the earth. That's acknowledgement. I believe in the Easter Bunny. Believe in Santa Claus. And... That's not believing. Acknowledgement is not believing. The problem is, is we've got too many people in the churches today that want to acknowledge Jesus, but they don't want to believe Jesus. I don't mean that they know He exists. The Greek word for believe is pistuo. It means more than that. It's a reference to one placing their faith in to make this belief a foundation for our lives and for our decisions. Every decision in our lives will be led by what you pistuo or what you believe. If you believe this, then you stand upon the foundations and the things He taught. Then you receive the truth of His Word and you make sure that your life is led by it. You say, Pastor, that's crazy. Listen, people do it now. People live by what they believe now. You can tell a lot about what a person believes by how they live. It's true. You can see the lines. This, oh, I believe this much, but I won't believe any more than that. God wouldn't do this. God wouldn't do this. God wouldn't do this. You know God so well. How about opening the book and read it? You got somebody reading the book, you can, you can learn a lot from them when they read the book and say, well, but that's not, that's not for today. It's not believing, folks. That's called picking and choosing. That's acknowledging God enough to get to heaven. But I don't want to believe. Because I don't want to have to live by what this says. That might offend somebody. Well, that's why Jesus suffered. He was suffered and was hated without reason. Because He believed His Father. 
You see, we don't, we don't understand this. we got a lot of people that want to acknowledge God enough to get to heaven, but they don't want to believe to where it affects their lives. You may say, Pastor, you may say you have faith in Christ now, but how do you know you have faith in Christ? Well, I'm going to give you a few things to look at, and then we're going to close. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All have sinned, and everyone who will call will be saved. All have sinned, but everyone who calls will be saved. This confession, we see two things here. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. Confession. It's more than just saying, Jesus is Lord, and I believe. Do you know there's a movement right now called the hyper-grace movement? Where everything is just about God's grace, 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 grace. And God is full of grace, church. I don't argue that one bit. But when you take a teaching and you say a person said one prayer in their life, they got saved at an altar, and now they can never, ever, if they do anything wrong, ever go to God and say, Lord, please forgive me. Because if you do that, then that's an insult against God's grace. He saved you, and He's canceled out all your sin and all your future sin. If you make a mistake, God can't see it, and don't you dare, don't you dare even ask forgiveness for that. I'd like to just debunk that theory right now. Okay? I'm not going to say you'll lose your salvation every time you make a mistake, but Jesus told Peter, Peter, he said, he said I'm washing your feet. Peter said, no, Lord, don't just wash my feet. Wash my body, my hands, my everything. And Jesus said, there's no need to wash the rest of you. Just your feet's dirty. What's the point and purpose of that? The purpose is, is we get cleansed and saved. Jesus said, you're clean already. Not all of you are clean, but you're clean. You only need your feet washed. We walk through a nasty, filthy world full of sin, and there's times we need to get our feet washed with Jesus. It doesn't mean that you've got to get saved again. But there's times that we walk through this world and we get caught up in stuff. You say, what's my point? My point is, is confession and believing is a life decision day in, day out. So it's not a sit down at an altar one time, pray a prayer, say a few uh, words and cry a few tears and get a lot of attention and leave and go and live my life. What it's saying is, is that if I'm going to say I'm going to believe and live for Jesus, this happens every day, not just today. Confessing, confessing Christ means I get up in the morning and I'm going to live for Jesus. And every decision that comes my way, I'm going to believe the truth of the Word enough that I'm going to obey it instead of my flesh or the philosophies of this world. Confession and believing is more than just saying it right here at the altar. It starts here, but folks, it's an everyday occurrence. How do I know I'm saved? How do I know I have faith in Christ? Are you living it? Is there some kind of an effect on your life? Are you living that confession and belief daily? Secondly, repentance is necessary. You cannot have confession without repentance. You have got 
to repent. Jesus, when he came after John the Baptist, John the Baptist prepared the way. We just sang it this morning, prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist came, he's preaching, he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus continued his teaching, Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Other books say it too, Mark 1, 15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Folks, <laughs> if a person is confessing and not repenting, there's a problem. That's not believing. If you confess without repent, that's not believing. Hear me out. I've been in this long enough, I've met the confessors. Know what I'm talking about? A lot of people don't mind confessing their sins. Some people boast about it. And, and, and they come in and they come to brother, sister, so-and-so, and they, they come in with a need for attention, and they'll confess their sin to one another, like James says we should, but they leave without an attitude of repentance. They want people to gather around them and encourage them and build them up, but they have no intention of repenting when they walk out the door because if they do, then they won't be able to get the attention they seek anymore. Folks, I'm going to tell you the problem is, is our culture is full of people who like to confess and nobody wants to repent. And that's not believing. Just let it soak in. I'm not saying confession's a bad thing. It's a good thing. Confession is good for the soul, Pastor. It's good for the soul. It is, but repentance is even better. I'll just take two steps back at this point because all the confessors are here going, you talking about me? Nope, look at your neighbor and say it. He's talking about you. Jesus told the Pharisees, they held on to their confession of faith. They held on to their confession that they were Abraham's children. Therefore, they were automatically promised into all the promises of God because of their, uh, their, their genealogical line, because of the genes that they had flowing through their blood. They were Abraham's children. And Jesus looked at him. He said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. There needs to be a repentance. There cannot be this confession and walking and continuing in our sin. And so the life of the one that is saved, the one that truly has believed, the one that has faith in Christ that Paul talks about is the individual that their life is marked by obedience. It doesn't say that they're absolutely perfect and every time they don't ever make a reaction or they don't have anything like that. That's why the continual confession is important. But I'm telling you what, folks, there should be an increasing evidence of obedience in a believer's life. Matthew 7, Jesus says these words in verses 24 through 27. I'll just have Devin come now. As long as people still listen. A lot of times Devin comes and everybody goes, You think I'm not watching you. Jesus said this. In Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. What we have here is a visual example of one that's confessing and doing and one that's confessing alone without repentance and obedience. Jesus had just told him earlier in that chapter, He said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. You'll know a false prophet by his fruit or her fruit. You'll know him. But He said, the man that hears what I teach and they apply that to their lives is like the one that builds his house on a rock. 
You see, both had houses. One built it on a rock, the other one built it on the shifting sand and whatever they wanted their philosophy to be. They had confession of the house. They said, look, I have a house. I am a believer. But one built it upon Christ in faith and the other one built it upon whatever else. And one obeyed and the other did not. That's what it boils down to. One repented and the other one did not. One had a picture of though they were alive or a, or a front as though they were living and, and one, you know, as, as faith and the other one had real faith because they obeyed. What's my point? My point is this, folks. Jesus Christ went to the cross for your sins. And your house will fall with a great crash if you're only coming to church and confessing Jesus and not living in obedience because that is not belief. It's not belief. That's acknowledgement. That's acknowledging Jesus. The world's full of people that acknowledge Jesus but don't want to believe Him. But if you believe Him and you obey Him, and that doesn't mean that you never make a mistake. It doesn't mean, oh, if you get it wrong, oh, my house is going to crash now. No. No, 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 no. It means that it's going to stand. Why? Because you walk in a consistent confession and repentance before God. Even at times when you make mistakes, the Lord is just and faithful to forgive us our sins. Folks, don't you understand that this God we, we, we live for is merciful and loving? So Romans 3, 22 through 26, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. All those who found every decision and confession upon who He is and what He has said and what He has done upon the blood shed on the cross. There is no difference, folks. All of us are full of sin. All of us have sinned. We're all in a bad condition. And even in our own holiness and efforts, we have fallen short of the glory of God or the holiness that we would need to be able to see God face to face. We're in a hopeless situation. But we may be full of sin or have been full of sin, but we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That grace church was shown by the fact that God presented Him as a sacrifice, making the initial effort, the initial step to fix what we broke. And Jesus' blood was shed as an atonement. And we believe upon that atonement through faith in this blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time. Today is the day of salvation. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. We don't celebrate Easter because of a big funny bunny that brings Easter eggs. We celebrate Easter because of a lamb that went to a cross and died for our sins. Specifically timed by God at the Jewish Passover. Specifically positioned purposefully all throughout history pointing toward Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to take communion. And as we take communion, here's what I want you to think about. Adam and Eve. Why Adam and Eve, Pastor Bob? I thought you said this was supposed to have been done and do this in remembrance of me, Jesus. We are. I gave you a visual example 
early on in this message of Adam and Eve having to have an animal sacrificed and the skins wrapped around their nakedness because of their sin. And I can only imagine the moment that Adam peered into the water and saw himself. And the humility and the humbling understanding of this animal had to die because of my actions. When Jesus broke bread with His disciples, He said, do this as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of Me. Folks, when we break this bread and we drink this cup, it's a humbling thing because I realize He had to die and suffer because of my sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And it's all wrapped up in it. He took the wages, He paid the debt, and He gave a gift to us, something we didn't deserve.